0: I do remember driving down the freeway with a nice little wad of cash and thinking that went a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I'm not threatening anybody or putting a gun in anybody's face. I'm just uh, taking a little bit of money. And <laughs> I mean, I hate to say this, but in some respects, it was kind of fun.
1: Last summer, I found myself driving around the Seattle area with a guy named Tony. On the
0: left over there? It's across We
1: were on a tour of sorts looking for important sites from his past. north. His childhood home, the little coffee kiosk he used to own. But what he really wanted to show me was the last bank he ever robbed.
0: Yeah, it goes straight. I, to be honest, man, I haven't been down here for
1: a minute. According to Tony, the way this particular bank was
0: situated made it the perfect target for a heist. So what did you like about this location? Oh, I'll show you. Oh, It's a great one. I'll show you when we get up here. <laughs> this is, like, actually... Probably one of the easiest ones. Keep going straight.
1: This guy, Tony, Tony Hathaway is his full name. Let's just say he knows a thing or two about robbing banks.
0: Yeah, I robbed, I I, I went to Marysville, Everett, Linwood, Bothell, uh... Bellevue. Let's see. Well, then, of course, Northgate area down here, Seattle. Good evening and welcome to Washington's Most Wanted. We've never led the show with a bank robber, but I am tonight because the FBI's Seattle Safe Streets Task Force needs your help identifying this serial bank robber. Using not much more
1: than a hoodie and a mask cut from a T-shirt, Tony Hathaway became one of the most prolific bank robbers in American history. But the bank we were looking for on this day... That robbery didn't go exactly as planned.
0: It was just a single story bank, you know, with mostly glass panels all the way around it, which was nice because when I would drive by, I could easily see in there whether there's customers or not. The entrance faced this way. So yeah, it made it very easy to get in and out of there without a whole lot of people seeing you. So I would park just down here around the corner, come out of the bank, walk down the sidewalk to my getaway car,
1: This guided tour we were on was happening back in July of 2020, in the thick of the pandemic. At this particular moment, we were driving around University Village, or U-Village, a huge outdoor shopping center near the University of Washington.
0: So hang on, so take a left up here, though, on this side street, if you can. I think we can still drive through.
1: It's a maze of upscale shops. Everlane, CB2, Lululemon, all made up to look like the downtown of an idyllic little village. Tony didn't recognize it. His last clear memory of this place was from over six years ago.
0: Boy, this is a nice shopping center, isn't it?
1: Not since the day his life of crime ended at
0: a key bank. I think if you take a left, yeah, take a left here. Oh, my goodness. Is it gone? Those little bastards tore it down. Was it right there? It was right there. (laughs) Are you kidding me right now? big hole in the ground. That is crazy. It's gone. (laughs) I'm very, I'm gravely disappointed that we just drove all the way down here in the... The one bank we really wanted to see has now been leveled. (laughs) It does not. It's a hole in the ground. Dang.
1: I'm Josh Dean. I'm a journalist and the co-creator of both The Clearing and Chameleon Hollywood Con Queen. But I knew even before I made those shows that I wanted to tell Tony Hathaway's story. A few years ago, I was poking around, looking for stories about bank robbers, like really successful ones. I wanted to find someone who was gifted, I guess, at robbing banks. And I stumbled across a small thing in the Seattle newspaper. Local man robs 30 banks. Damn, I thought, that's a lot of banks. Like an in the record books kind of number. Seemed like exactly the kind of story I was looking for. Maybe even better. So I wrote to Tony, who was in prison at the time. And when he finally got back to me by email, his response left me kind of speechless. Not sure Not how sure much of my story, of my story you're familiar with, he wrote. But, but in, in short,
0: short, I worked for a very large. I worked for a very large commercial airplane company for 22 years as a technical designer and engineer. Injured my back, had two surgeries, then became addicted to OxyContin, then heroin. Robbed 30 banks in a year, and now prison. Airplane engineer? Did he say
1: heroin? And he robbed 30 banks? I mean, what? I went in looking for a successful bank robber, found one, like maybe one of the most successful ever, and it turns out that's not even the most interesting part of this story. In an instant, the story I thought I was looking for spiraled into something totally different, almost unbelievable. It wasn't just a tall tale about some ingenious bank robber. It was about a middle-aged dad with a comfortable career who became an ingenious bank robber. That's one hell of a midlife crisis. How does that happen? In his very next email, Tony summed up his saga, I guess you could call it, as a, quote, painful story about a guy who pretty much had it made and lost it all because he became addicted to pain medication that he was prescribed by his family doctor.
0: What I didn't know at the time is what I was really being prescribed. I didn't realize that this is basically pharmaceutical heroin. Tony obviously never thought he would
1: become addicted. No one does. But it happened fast, and it cost him everything. His job, his savings, his dignity. Everything. And his addiction still looms over him every day, which explains a lot.
0: But it doesn't explain how he ended up wanted by the FBI. I'm a heroin addict, and uh, I had to do something. You know, to not just feed my drug habit, to also help take care of my family. So for me, it was bank robberies was the easiest way to to get money.
1: Well, easy until you get caught. This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. A story about cops and robbers, doctors and dealers, and getting high versus getting by.
0: I, I was a mess. I mean, I, overall, I think I was a good person, you know, like, to my friends and to, you know, as far as like just being kind to people, and, but I'm robbing banks like crazy, which is obviously wrong. Part one, The
1: Fatal Funnel. Once I understood the scope of Tony's story, I needed to know more. I asked if he would mind getting on the phone with me. He was happy. Even eager to talk. This
2: call is from an inmate at the Monroe Correctional
1: Complex.
0: Hello. Hello. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, I can hear you fine.
0: How you doing? Oh, you know. (laughs) Living the dream.
1: Tony was charming and refreshingly candid. I liked talking to him. We spoke almost every weekend, very early in the mornings, before there was a crowd around the prison's public phones. Are you around tomorrow?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm here every day, buddy. (laughs) All right, well, I, love, hey, I, I ain't gonna lie, I love talking to you. This is like the, the funnest part of my days. So, oh, well, I'm glad.
1: Eventually, uh, I went out to see him tomorrow. in prison at the Monroe Correctional Complex in rural Washington.
2: Good afternoon, can I help you?
1: Yeah, I'm here to see an inmate at the camp. Uh, I'm
2: they a... are open for processing. You've a good visit.
1: Uh, okay, what do I do, actually? It's my first time.
2: Okay, I'm up here in the tower talking to you.
1: Oh, hi. I'd like to play you tape from that visit, but I don't have any because you're not allowed to record inside Washington state prisons. You're not even allowed to bring paper or a pen. So a journalist meeting a prisoner needs either a photographic memory, or you could do what I did. We pretended to play a game, and I used the scratch paper for scoring and a stubby pencil from Yahtzee to scribble some notes. Tony and I kept talking when he got out of prison, too, at the very end of 2019.
0: Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. So how's it feel? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, uh... Yeah, it's it's good to be free, man.
1: I mean, there was so much to talk about. Tony Hathaway's story is sprawling and messy, as all the best stories are. It's about a guy who had it all, then lost it. Who made desperate decisions that hurt people, and himself. Most of all, it's about the extremely precarious nature of life, which can be totally fine one day, and then fall apart the next. You know, I've been through a
0: lot of shit, obviously, this, the last 10 years, so. It's been a long fucking road, so whatever, you know, whatever they throw at me, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll, I, I can handle it. We'll get through it. This is sort of Tony's M.O. No matter what, he's a cheerful
1: dude, one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. In fact, you just heard one of his favorite phrases. He uses it all the time to punctuate even his darkest, most heartbreaking
0: stories. We'll get through it. I realize I'm not the only one struggling, so we'll get through it. Yeah, we'll get through it. We'll be all right, but we'll see what happens. I'll get through it one way or another.
1: And Tony has gotten through it many times over because there's another whole angle to his story that became very clear to me. The more I talked with him, the more I realized Tony's story was extreme, but it was also typical in a way. If you take away the crime spree part, his story, his downfall, is a lot like thousands of others in America yet another victim of this epidemic we hear so much it about. It's a phrase we hear constantly in the news, and I suppose I always thought I had a pretty good handle on what it meant. But getting to know Tony was like taking a college course on opioids and how they ruined so many lives. The crisis changed for me from something abstract to something personal. Because the arc of Tony's story, overlaid on a timeline of the opioid epidemic, lines up almost perfectly. Its inflection points are his, too. It's almost uncanny. Like millions of other people all over America, Tony fell into a trap laid by a powerful pharmaceutical company. And the little bottles of pills he picked up at Rite Aid set him on a trajectory that just blew up his life. He's lucky to be alive. And frankly, when you hear the story we're going to unspool over the next nine episodes, you'll see why. To help understand Tony's wild ride, we're going to start somewhere in the middle. By retracing the day when things truly unraveled. When Tony Hathaway woke up on February 11th, 2014, he didn't have to think about how he'd be spending his day. He knew exactly how he'd be spending it. First, he'd fix himself up with some heroin,
0: then he'd rob a bank. That day would have started the same as every other day, you know. I remember I left pretty early that morning. I think it was around 9 or 10 a.m. You know, I talked to my sister ahead of time and she said I could, you know, borrow her
1: van. A light blue Honda Odyssey with one missing side mirror and a large Seahawks
0: decal in the back window. My plan was to go down to Seattle to a bank that I had robbed, I think about five or six months earlier. It was super easy and I got, like, $5,000, so it was a pretty good hit for for what I was doing anyways
1: at the time. Tony's average take from a bank was $2,500. Not exactly the stuff of legend. If you're picturing guys in president's masks, carrying big black duffel bags and blueprints to a vault with a getaway driver waiting outside, well, forget all of that. Tony's just a guy who needed some cash. He fits exactly nobody's stereotype of what a criminal mastermind might look like. He's just a middle-aged dad who these days mostly wears sweatshirts, cargo shorts, and sneakers. He often comes across as charming and confident, but he also smokes a vape to keep his nerves in check. But he was an engineer, a problem solver. And for a year at least, he solved one problem very well. How to rob a bank.
0: Why do you think you were so good at it? Like, you got away with it for so long. Uh, Planning and patience. I think are two of the main things that, uh, you know, enabled me to continue on doing this for so long before I got caught. Let's talk for a
1: minute about that planning. Tony was meticulous, always looking for ways to fine tune the operation. His disguise and methods evolved over time. I've kind of fucked around with a couple different mask ideas, which he modeled for me when I visited him at his apartment north of Seattle. One of the masks looked like it was made out of a metallic sort of mesh. It turned out to be just a knit cap. Was the beanie, like, how did you arrive at that beanie idea?
0: I think I was messing around with different things, and I was in the bathroom, and I had pulled the beanie down over my face, and I was like, wow, I can totally see out of this perfectly, but you cannot identify who I am. Voila, disguise. (laughs) Um, The next idea that I came up with, this was a disaster, but I still did it a number of times. i take a t-shirt, cut the sleeves off of it, and cut the back off of it.
1: It was like a bib that he could wear under a dress shirt yank up over his face. Except the eye holes never lined up right, which is kind of a problem when you're
0: trying to work fast. So then we switched up to this other mask, and this worked a like a champ every time.
1: So that, this became one you used real a long time?
0: Well, I used a, I cut up a lot of t-shirts.
1: This is the one he used for that last robbery the key bank it was simple but clever made out of the sleeve of a seattle mariners t-shirt tony cut two eye holes in the front and wore it as a headband up under his hoodie so it's easy to pull down over his face then when he was done he could just yank it down around his neck and look totally inconspicuous on the way out of the bank too gloves the mask a hoodie and that's basically i mean that's pretty much all i needed so that was the get-up and then there were the run-throughs in the kitchen using household appliances to time himself.
0: I did use the, um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of stupid, but in the early planning stages, I used the timer on the microwave just to kind of go through the motions of what I figured it would take me to get in, get to the tower, get the money, and get out the door, basically. Now, here's where the patients came in.
1: Tony was very careful. He would only enter a
0: bank under the right conditions. He preferred to hit banks late in the day, during rush hour. Right, because for one, it's easier for me to get out and just blend in with, there's cars everywhere, right? And two, the police response time is gonna take longer because the roads are packed full of cars. In his ideal situation, no customers inside. I mean, I'm always driving by, checking, to make sure, as best I can, that there's nobody in the bank. You know, because that puts me at risk and probably puts other people at risk too, right? I might sit here all day driving around, go park for an hour, do it again.
1: Most important of all, no weapons. Tony's moral compass was badly bent, but it wasn't entirely broken.
0: I'm not using weapons. I'm not threatening anybody. I never even touched anybody. The
1: way Tony likes to remember all of this, he wasn't threatening. I'm not so sure the tellers would agree.
0: 911, what you,
2: 40? I'm working to Bank in Woodinville and we were just robbed. Okay, okay. So there's no weapons seen or implied, correct? No weapons. He just was really loud and vocal.
3: We're going to key Bank. Got it.
2: mask looked like the eyes were cut out of
3: it. The face was not seen. The FBI has been advised. We're not sure if they're responding or not. Got
1: He hit banks all up and down the Puget Sound area. Plotted out his pins on a map, Tony's spree would resemble a wishbone, arcing up from Seattle to Marysville and then swooping back down to Bellevue, just across the bridge over Lake Washington. It was, for most of 2013, almost a full-time job, by necessity. Because as I mentioned, bank robbery is not as lucrative as you'd think. It's not actually lucrative at all. One of the things that struck me back when I originally read about Tony was that in all of those robberies, 30 of them, his total haul was only about $76,000. He put his life on the line 30 times for what amounts to a middle-class salary. But the amount doesn't matter to banks, and the longer Tony kept at it, the more banks began to react. They were starting to take precautions.
0: After, I don't know, 15 or so robberies, I think a lot of these local banks started hiring security guards, you know, banks that didn't normally have them. And if there's a security guard there, I'm definitely, you know, that's that's scratched off the list immediately. The last thing
1: Tony wanted was a struggle, or to run into a hero. So banks with even a hint of security were out. And there were only so many banks. Tony had become so successful that he started to run out of targets. He had to go back and rob a few banks more than once.
0: Man, I don't know. At what number would I have gotten to? <laughs> had I not done this next dumb thing we're going to talk about? Uh, it's hard to say.
1: Which brings us back to that day in February when Tony gathered his kit, hopped in his sister's minivan, and headed 25 miles south from his home in Everett, finally arriving at the Seattle Key Bank that's now a hole in the ground, the
0: same bank he'd successfully robbed a few months before. Honestly, at that point, it's like just another day in the office. I'm just going to do something that i had become very comfortable with.
1: Still, Tony would never just roll up and rob a place. His process the day of was cautious. He wanted to stick to his own most important rule. What I'm looking for is that there aren't
0: any customers in the bank.
1: But on this day, at that key bank, people kept showing up. And the customers weren't Tony's only problem. Over the course of several hours, as he drove around and around and parked and scouted and watched for an opening, Tony noticed some
0: other things that didn't sit right. I mean, I remember the point where I realized I was being followed, and I knew it was law enforcement because they were in a black SUV that was all tinted out. I had flipped a U-turn in the Husky Football Stadium parking lot. I'd whipped in there and I'd noticed that the SUV made a quick U-turn in that same area, which confirmed to me that I was being followed.
1: The first time I heard about the black van, I was suspicious. Tony was at the tail end of a year-long heroin-fueled bank robbery bender. And it's probably safe to assume his judgment and instincts weren't exactly firing on all cylinders. Turns out, As impaired as Tony's perception may have been, he was right.
3: They were on to him. I already had the SWAT team on standby. This is Len Carver. He worked for the
1: Seattle police for 27 years. First as a patrolman, and then later as a detective. Carver's retired now, by the way, and lives in a lovely house overlooking Puget Sound. Back in his uniform days, in the 90s, Carver really loved getting called to bank robberies.
3: It was one of the funnest things you could do is chase bank robbers. It was, it was the, really you know the good guys and the bad guys, the cops and the robbers. By
1: the time this particular detective learned about this particular robber, he was also in charge of an
3: FBI task force. Carver had been thinking about this case, this day, for a long time. It was a frustrating case. It was embarrassing a little bit, you know we've had pattern robberies and, and a lot of robberies. But this one was baffling and a little bit embarrassing that that we just can't seem to catch the guy. We're always just right behind him, you know. In his nearly three decade career, no
1: robber had been more prolific.
3: And we really had did I recall any physical evidence, no latent prints, there was no DNA. There were no tips. Didn't have a vehicle description. He was able to do it for, you know, a long
1: time, much longer than other people. That's Steve Hoover, now retired from the Bellevue Police Department, who worked the case as part of the same task force as Carver.
3: He kept it very simple, and, you know, he didn't get sloppy. A lot of them, after they've done it a few times, get a little sloppy, or they start talking about it. You know, his, his M.O. is really no different than most of the bank robberies, but he kept
1: it simple and stuck to that pattern. And for a long time, it worked. It took detectives months to connect the dots. They were basically stymied. Until February 11, 2014,
3: when things finally broke their way. There is a point, you know, you feel deep down that this is, this is about to break open, you know? And I remember calling Hoover. Detective Hoover and said, Steve, I I think this is it. I think this is going to be the day, man. That day, Carver found himself sitting in a cruiser,
1: tracking Tony's movements over the police radio.
3: He drove around all day. You know, I felt like he was getting nervous that he knew he was being tailed or something uh, because he was all over the place.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was nervous and scared. I remember just freaking out because I'm, you know, I know these guys are on my tail and I'm trying to hide everything in the van as I'm driving down the street. At some point, I lost him. I mean, at least that that black SUV was no longer behind me. And uh, I decided to leave the area. Tony drove back north toward his home and went through some
1: other towns like Kenmore and Lake City, scoping for a backup bank that he could maybe hit instead.
0: So I, I spent maybe an hour or so kind of casing out a couple different banks, and it was no good. I mean, there was just way too much traffic, too many customers coming in and out. He was on edge, paranoid. I remember pulling off at a gas station at one point and crawling under the van. I was trying to see if they'd put a tracker on the vehicle because I couldn't figure out, like, how did these guys get on to me? Lan and his officers
1: held their positions down in Seattle.
3: I think I recall, you know, I recall making a decision that to avoid being burned, let's scale back the eyes on Tony and let's stay in the area around the bank because this is going to be the fatal funnel. This is where he's going to come. This is where it's going to happen. So, yeah,
0: I mean, that day got a little bit crazy. It was, it was certainly different than all the rest, you know? So why didn't you just pull the ripcord and, and call it off? Uh, I, I certainly thought about it. I knew that, that there was a risk, but I think at that point I, I was willing to accept that. I mean, I, man, I, I'm so burnt out by then. I was, uh, Committed to getting this done. I mean, it was, I had no money, so there was no backing out for me.
1: Because it's important to remember, Tony was almost out of dope, and the whole point of becoming a professional bank robber was a desperate attempt to keep up with his addiction, which was always snarling at his heels. So Tony needed to make a pit stop. He knew a local
0: fast food place with a secluded parking lot. I think I, I had a, one shot left of heroin. So I decided to go back down to University Village to where I'd started. I remember going to um, to the Burger Master, which is real close to the bank. I pulled in there. It's probably like three o'clock in the afternoon by then. So I'm kind of running out of time as far as having an opportunity to get in there before they close. I remember doing a fat shot of heroin and I just uh, nodded off. I was out for I don't know how long it was, maybe an hour.
1: It was the last of his dope. And, in fact, it would turn out to be the last time Tony Hathaway ever shot up. And when he woke up, he was lucid, fixed. Maybe a bit high, but at least not dope sick. His mind was clear to go about his business. So just after four, Tony drove over to the bank and parked, just down the street. What he didn't know is that he was still being watched by Len Carver and a small army of cops. Agents were hovering nearby in unmarked cars, at the ready, wearing street clothes with law enforcement raid jackets. All of them waiting to pounce. Told to stand by and basically wait for this man to rob a bank.
3: It's, it's a conundrum. You don't ever want to let a robbery go down if you could prevent a robbery, right? This detail really bothered me at first.
1: I even pressed Carver on it. You let a guy rob a bank? But his response helped me to understand a little bit. Until Tony robs a bank, he's just a guy walking into a bank. So what can cops really do?
3: So, yeah, we had those conversations. And that he's a free person at that point. If he wants to get out of his car and go into the bank, it would be improper to stop him. I'm not nervous. I got people. I got skilled, trained, well-armed, capable people with eyes on. I'm not nervous at all. I'm excited that the, the likelihood that this whole thing is about to come to an abrupt halt. This series is going to end. A bad guy's going to be in custody. Tony, though, he was feeling the pressure. This wasn't
1: a
0: 24-hour bank. I'm up against the clock, right? I mean, I don't know if the bank closes at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., but it's I don't have any options after that, right? I mean, once that bank closes, all the other banks are going to be closed and and then I'm I'm done for the day. So
1: Tony's alert, even with the heroin coursing through his system. And he
0: notices something else. I remember there was some guys at the apartments across the street were doing like landscaping or something, which was weird cuz this was in February. I was already nervous because I knew I had been followed earlier that day. And so I'm seeing these guys over there and I'm thinking, this is, man, these guys seem out of place. But again,
1: he's strung out. He's been strung out for months. Maybe they really were landscaping in February.
3: You know, I wouldn't want to comment. I didn't direct someone to get out and pretend to be a groundskeeper for purposes of a surveillance operation, but we're all independent thinkers. Carver had talked to his teammates a lot about the plan. I just didn't want anybody to get hurt. You never do. And there was a decision not to engage uh, inside the bank and to let him get out of the bank uh, if indeed it was going to be a robbery. Inside the bank, five employees were wrapping up their shifts.
1: Melissa Colson was the lead teller that day.
2: I do pretty well in pressure situations. I can keep my cool.
1: She had no idea that Tony was sitting in the parking lot at that very moment waiting to rob her, of course. But Melissa was pretty well equipped to handle what was about to happen, because unbelievably, Melissa had also been on duty the last time Tony robbed this bank.
2: I had the best view of the door, and I saw him walk in, and immediately knew that he was there to rob us. He had not even a mask. It was like a burlap bag over his face, with holes cut into the front. And yeah, he just went straight for me.
1: And while she might have kept her cool the first time, she was scared. Melissa was pretty seasoned. She knew the banks get robbed all the time. But no matter how many FBI alerts she'd seen coming through the bank's security department, it's different when it happens to you. That first time...
2: I was terrified. And I don't remember him being threatening in any way. I think it was just his physical appearance at that time was just really terrifying. It was just the mask and the plastic gloves on his hand that I think made it so scary for me.
1: The experience left her badly shaken.
2: When I got home, I was like physically ill, so I I vomited. The next morning I felt like I had been hit by a truck, like my whole body ached.
1: Outside, Tony was getting more nervous and especially frustrated in the van. He decided he just couldn't put it off any longer. If there were any stragglers making deposits in the bank, so be it. At 4.28 p.m., he got out of his car and headed for the bank. Man, I I just went
0: in. I was like, fuck it, it is what it
1: is. (laughs) And he fell right into a familiar rhythm, following the muscle memory from an act he'd
0: completed 29 times. They have cameras, obviously, outside, right? So as I walk up, I got my head down, like I'm with my phone. You know, like everybody else in town is walking around with their head down, looking at their phone so I don't look suspicious.
1: He's got his hoodie, his phone, and another secret weapon, his umbrella.
0: You just use the umbrella to block the cameras as you're walking up to the bank, right? So Tony ducked under his umbrella and headed for the door. So at this point, I don't have my mask on, right, but I have my hoodie on. So I'm I'm looking straight down at my cell phone so that None of the cameras that they have outside can get an image of my face. And then I open the door, and right as I walk in through the door, I reach up and pull the mask down over my face. Once inside with the mask on, he's past the point of no return. This is a robbery. Yeah, I just, I make a beeline straight for the counter, and I go straight for the first teller booth that has a a teller working at it. Behind that counter, it was Melissa Colson, of
1: course, being robbed for the second time.
2: He did the same thing. He walked from the door straight to me, and I saw him again, and...
0: It's a pretty short discussion, you know. Open the drawer. Large bills only. Twenties, fifties, and hundreds. No small bills.
1: Bank tellers are trained to deal with robberies. And really, it boils down to one simple rule. Cooperate.
2: Our job is to just give it over. It's insured money. It's not worth um, any kind of heroism to try and prevent a bank robbery. You just hand over the money and and, and have them leave as fast as possible.
1: Melissa fully planned to cooperate, but as Tony approached, her protective instinct kicked in.
2: I had my 19-year-old part-time teller who was a student at UW behind the line with me. I think she was very scared. She'd never been in Um, this type of situation before. She was young and I wanted to keep her safe, which is why I told her to just go in the back room. And so she she ran into like our little vestibule where our our vault is in like a locked, secured room. Kind of had like tunnel vision.
1: Melissa worked quickly. She wanted to get it over with.
2: I just grabbed large bills, handed them over to him and just wanted him to leave. He he scared the crap out of me, and you know, my coworkers, I can't deny that.
0: There was one
1: extra step for Tony at the counter,
0: an important one. I went through the money real quick to make sure there wasn't a tracking device or a dye pack in there, and put the money in
1: my pocket. Then it was time to go. Tony was inside that key bank for less than a minute total.
0: I think I'm literally in and out of the bank in 30 seconds. And then when I leave, right, I I go back towards the door. I'm looking down again. Looking down at his phone, he means. I pull this down over my neck, and I walk out of the bank like anybody else.
1: And that is when all hell broke loose. Right here, right here. Finally, after almost a year of Tony's low-key successes, these insignificant, relatively stress-free robberies It did look exactly like that scene you'd picture in a movie.
0: I remember walking out and all of a sudden I just had somebody running at me with a gun in my face and they were coming out of behind trees and cars and it was crazy.
1: It seemed like every cop in town had descended upon the bank to help stop one of the most prolific bank robbers any of them had ever hunted. Among them was Seattle Police Detective John Vradenberg. He would later write in his police statement about the exact moment he apprehended Tony. Bradenberg didn't want to speak to us, so this isn't his real voice.
3: I put us between him and the bank doors to prevent him from fleeing back inside and creating a hostage situation. I stopped and exited the car as the FBI agents confronted the suspect with guns drawn, ordering him to put his hands up and get on the ground. I approached the proned out suspect, handcuffed, and searched him.
0: I'm like, don't shoot me, I'm unarmed. I remember telling him that. I'm unarmed. (laughs) You know, I put my hands out right because I don't want to get shot.
1: Vradenberg's statement confirms this. He reports that Tony said, I'm not armed. I would never use a gun. He also said this, I knew you guys were following me because I saw that black SUV. God, I'm so stupid. Vradenberg searched Tony's jacket pockets and recovered two blue rubber gloves and a wad of cash. It was $2,310.
0: I got down flat on my face and I knew it was over. That was it.
1: Obviously, the robbery was over. The day was over. Bad things were coming. But what Tony really means is that he had a realization there on that cold pavement, as a cop dug a knee into his back.
0: I just remember just laying there, and all these thoughts are going through my head. You know, I'm relieved that it's over, and, cause I mean, I knew at some point it had to end. It was, shit was just so bad. This is how he remembered it all,
1: as we were sitting in the car in Seattle last summer.
0: But I'm thinking about my mom because she's, you know, she was really sick at the time and didn't have a lot of time left. And then, of course, I'm thinking about my family. You know, I'm thinking about.
1: (laughs) This pause goes on for 25 seconds as Tony fought back tears. As he tried to finish the sentence, to explain to me what he was thinking about as he laid there on that cold Seattle ground six years ago.
0: I'm thinking about how my daughter's going to feel. Because, I mean, she had no idea what I was doing, you know, and it was, I mean, I knew it was going to be a huge thing. Like, I know I'm caught, and she's in high school, and... You know, just the embarrassment and the humiliation, you know, for all her friends, you know, that that I put her through.
1: Before he got caught, Tony wasn't thinking about all the people he'd been hurting. He was only worried about getting his next fix. But now, face down on the pavement, the gravity of it all was really
0: settling in. Like, I robbed 30 banks. I'm never going to get out of prison. That's what I'm, I remember thinking that. And I also remember thinking, like, I'm completely fucked.
1: Next week, we'll rewind the clock to see where Tony's life might have taken him had he never run into OxyCon. And what happened after, as his idyllic-seeming life unraveled, one little round pill at a time.
0: this season unhooked. Let's be clear here. I'm not saying it's okay to rob a bank. I mean, it, it's not okay, but in my world at the time, I found a way to justify that pretty quickly.
3: Do you think we're playing a game, dude? No, I- we did not stumble on you at Key Bank in the University District today because I happened to be driving by with a donut in my hand. We have been looking at you!
0: I initially was prescribed uh, 10 milligram. That was for my family doctor that was prescribing me that. So I'm removing the coating off of them and cutting them up and smoking them on foil. I mean, you clearly know it's a problem. At that point.
2: You need to figure out a way to stop. Like, this is going to kill you.
0: I ended up switching over to doing heroin. Oh, Oxycontin. Oh, you got a prescription. You're fine. Oh, you're doing heroin. You're a scumbag. You're a loser. You know, the worst of society. I despised him so much. Full-time junkie. Shooting heroin. Every day. Zero to a 100, just like that. I mean, shit was already going downhill, but it... (laughs) That just took it to a whole nother level. I was hallucinating and
3: throwing up. People truly feel like they're going to die. But you can't kill yourself because they lock you in a cell and throw away the key. I had like 10,000 bucks. I
0: had guns. (laughs) I was selling guns. He said he didn't care if they were stolen. He didn't care. If it shot a bullet, he wants it. Yeah, it was just all bad. By the time you become addicted to it, it's no longer a choice. Now you're in survival mode. And then I see the stack of hunters right there. Boom, Grab that too, stuffed it in my pocket, and I'm running. Northeast North Gateway.
2: Hi, Metro, I need to give you a bank robbery suspect description.
0: And I hear sirens in the distance, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm so screwed. It's a white
2: male, unknown age.
3: It was just a matter of time. When Purdue Pharma was releasing OxyContin, what they were interested in was a blockbuster drug. The Sockers
0: were making billions, pushing Oxy. Another company or another family might have changed course after learning that the product they sold was killing people, not the Sacklers. How does our system even allow for something like this to happen? For these people to walk away billionaires when so many lives have been destroyed?
1: Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campsite Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands, And Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peischel and Callie Hitchcock. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Field producing on this episode by Bethany Denton and Kyle Norris. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers of Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriatis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
3: If you'd like to read the original article that set this story in motion... You can find it in Apple News. Just click the link in our episode description. Thanks.